Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. I've heard about you all for the past two years uh, via Stu Sherrard. Um, Stu has been, he and Carol Lee have been a welcome blessing in Amber and I's life. Um, and here's how. As you know, Stu is a retired Army colonel, and he's also a pastor. And he serves on the PCA's board uh, to watch over us chaplains. And uh, since the moment I set foot here in Tucson, Stu has made it his mission uh, to meet with me regularly. And so about once every three weeks, we go to his favorite Chinese restaurant right off post, <laughs> and we sit and eat. And uh, it has been wonderful fellowship. Uh, it's been a tremendous blessing in Amber and I's life to have both he and Carol Lee pour into us, to love on us, and sort of to shepherd us at the same time. So... Uh, he speaks highly of you all, and it's just been a privilege to finally get up here and see you uh, north side of Tucson. We don't normally make it up this far, but we're glad to be here. Well, this morning, um, we're going to look at the last part of a sermon series I have been doing at the chapel on the Eastern. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 21, verses uh, 15 through 19. And you know, if it's okay, I think this, why don't we back up just a couple of verses uh, just for context's sake, because uh, I think it help, would have helped out um, my first service this morning. Y'all are my second service this morning. Um, to the beginning of John chapter 1. And I'll be reading now the NIV. That's the text we use at the chapel. And uh, let's give our hearts and minds attention to the reading of God's Word. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and he said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called them out, friends? Haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because the large number of fish. When, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped up his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but not even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples and after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, 
feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for this text that was made sure it would be written in your holy word. Father, as we look at the power of your cross in the life of an individual, I pray, Lord, that each of us would reflect the power of your cross in our lives and how, Christ, your cross, the work that you did on the cross and the work of you rising Easter Sunday does to each one of us. It transforms us, it empowers us, and it calls us. So Lord, as we look today, may you give us ears to hear, and may you transform our souls, may you convict us of sin, and Lord, I would pray that you would help me to deliver this message. And I ask that in Christ's name, amen. When Jesus appeared to the disciples behind the locked doors that they were hiding, from the chief priest, he said unto them, Peace be with you. Having showed him his hands and his side where it had been pierced, he again said to address their fears, Peace be with you. However, for one in the room, complete peace had not yet happened. He was still sort of ruminating on the events of his betrayal to the Lord. And even though the Lord had said to him and to the rest of the disciples, peace be with you, he was still troubled. You see, the events of the cross had certainly left Peter, strong Peter, shaken. Well, Peter and the disciples were told to go back to Galilee. You remember Easter Sunday morning, Mary went to the throne, or not to the throne, went to the tomb, sorry, went to the tomb, and there... Jesus told her, tell your brothers, tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. In our text today, we see these seven men all together. John tells us Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and the two other disciples there in Galilee. They're by the Sea of Galilee. And they were waiting for the Lord. When Peter announced, I'm going fishing. Now, I'm from Kentucky, and I grew up around a few ponds. And men, you can probably relate. You're waiting on something and you sort of get tired of waiting. And like us guys, we say, I'm going fishing. Well, the rest of the men went with him. Now, we don't know for certain why this happened or why the disciples joined him. It could be a number of things. It could be P Peter's charisma as a leader. He was certainly the leader of the group and his announcement to go fishing 
The other six went with them. Or simply, maybe it could have been the fact that as guys, as I said before, they're tired of sitting around waiting. You know, uh, in the military, it's uh, rush, 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 sit and wait. Rush, 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 sit and wait. And uh, that sitting and waiting gets tiresome. Or perhaps it was, you know, they needed some money. It was the way they made their living. They were fishermen. Jesus had died and rose. They knew that, but you still got to have money to make it through life. Or perhaps the other six went with Peter simply to comfort him. After all, they knew what had happened. They knew Peter's need. They knew his concerns. Whatever it is, we, we don't know what motivated these men or why Peter decided to go fish, but what we do know and what is absolutely evident is that the Lord created this whole situation to do His work of restoration in Peter's life. He had a plan, and do not miss this, a plan of restoring Peter. And it was by no mistake they were where they were at. So like any seasoned fisherman, Peter and his companions chose the ideal time to catch fish. The Bible tells us they went at night and they spent the whole night laboring away with their nets. And as my dad would say, they, would have, they had no luck. The fish weren't biting. And it wasn't a good night. And so they started moving towards the shore when they heard someone cry out, Friends, haven't you any fish? Now, those, words, uh, those are words you don't really like to hear if you're the person in the boat. Because they're not just questions of, hey, how's it going? Have you caught any fish? No, it implies that Jesus knew they hadn't caught anything. And it's sort of like us guys like to do. There's a question, but there's a little jab with it. It sort of awakens the disciples' realization that they haven't caught anything. Now, they didn't know at the time, John tells us, that it was Jesus. But again, he was, his plan was in motion. So he told them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And our text tells us that they did. And they caught such a quantity that they were unable to haul that huge net of fish into their boat. It was such a large number. Now, what's interesting to note is the disciples' response. They didn't argue. They didn't say, oh, come on, man. We've been fishing all night. Who are you? Or shut up. That might be something we might say, wouldn't it? <laughs> but no, they simply obey. They obey Christ's words and God blesses. Now, don't miss this, church. Jesus at this point is providing an object lesson for them. Just as much as they needed to depend on Jesus in their ministry while Christ was present, here in this resurrected state, here in Christ in His glorious state, they would need to depend on Him. And we must too not, not miss this simple fact. You see, these guys were accomplished fishermen. They knew the best lures. They knew where the fish were at. They knew the water depths. You know, they didn't have the radar, but they knew where it was at. They may have not been Bill Dance or Jimmy Westmoreland, if you know... Where I'm from, those are household names in the state of Kentucky as glamorous fishermen. But they caught nothing. Now some may say they had no luck, but this is what Jesus exactly wanted them to see. Unless you 
my seven, unless you depend on me, your labors will be in vain. Jesus said it simply this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Lord wanted to remind His seven, His disciples, His leaders, their need for dependence upon Him. Well, John tells us the hall was good. It wasn't just good, it was something to make a note of because there was 153 fish to be exact. And they weren't small fish. They were big fish. And then he even goes on to continue to communicate the veracity of the miracle that the net hadn't even been torn. I mean, that's something to brag about. We caught so many fish, even the net wasn't torn. You know, when Jesus does this, two things are happening. He's continuing to display His love for His troops, His love for His disciples. He knew they needed to eat. He knew they needed to catch fish for their livelihood. And here, He provides for them. A second thing He tells them is to remind the disciples again of their failure at Gethsemane. You know, when they get to the boat or to the shore, John tells us they all knew it was the Lord. They all knew it. And the Bible says, John says, none of them dared even to begin a conversation with Him. Psalm 130 verse 4 said, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. And Romans 2 4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? You see, these men realized in Jesus' presence that the last thing they deserved was the catch of a lifetime. The last thing they deserved was to have a meal cooking in front of them. The last thing they deserved was even Jesus to move towards them. They had denied Him. They had fleed from their Lord when He wanted them around the most. And you know, it's often when you and I sin greatly that we see God's mercy and God's grace the clearest. It becomes like a beacon in the, in the night. We see our depravity and we see how awesome God's love is towards each one of us. You see, it was Jesus' mercy and not giving them what they did deserve. And oh, by the way, what they did deserve is to go the whole night and the rest of their lives without catching fish. They did deserve that, but it was mercy. He didn't give them that. And He also gave them grace, didn't He? Not only did He give them fish, He made sure their nets wouldn't be torn. And here, after a long night's work, He made sure that they had a meal that morning to eat. You know, I don't know about you, but my problem as a disciple of Christ is I often forget that all of life is a tremendous display of God's mercy and grace towards me. There's nothing I deserve. I don't deserve my wife's smile. I don't deserve my kid's hug. I don't deserve a good job serving America, serving the church. But God bestows that on me. And I think as we look at this text, it's a reminder to all of us of God's grace and mercy to each one of us. 
That's what happens when we sin greatly and God moves towards us in love and mercy. And that's what was happening with these disciples. I believe that's why when Solomon looked at the end of his book of Ecclesiastes, as he looked at the whole end course of his life, he said, here's what you need to do, men and women. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's when you and I reflect on the mercy and the grace of our holy, sovereign, omnipotent God that we move, that we are transformed, that we want to follow Him and we want to love Him. And that's what was happening to Peter in these twelve. Well, the disciples were being reminded that now. But besides grace and mercy, there was something else that John wanted to address. This last chapter in John is sort of interesting. Uh, many commentators, when I was preparing this, said you could compare it to an appendix. It's sort of that, that section in the book that no one reads. But this one's very important. You see, John wanted to make sure we didn't miss on a few things. Because you remember at the end of chapter 21, he says these are the things that Jesus did. And he sort of gives those nice summary verses. It's sort of his thesis statement of the whole book. But then he jumps into chapter 21. And he's trying here to answer some questions. And you need to remember in this that John's gospel was written probably about 30 to 25 years later than any of the other gospels. And so evidently some questions must have arose in the early church. And one of those many commentators think, was how did Peter become the leader of the early church after his horrible denials of Christ? It just sort of begs the question, does it not? We hear how great Peter was, but we read about his denials. What happened in between? And John here provides us this story of how Jesus restored Peter. You see, when Peter left the tomb, Luke tells us that he was wondering what had happened. And upon seizing Jesus after, afterwards, Peter was still dealing with his denial. So he provides us this account. Now, two or three later, or years prior to this, something else had happened. You may remember the story. It's found in Luke chapter 5. Peter, James, and John had been listening to Jesus teach. After he finished teaching, he got in a boat with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus bids Peter to put down his nets and you will catch some fish. Remember what Peter said? Lord, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we'll let down our nets. And you remember the rest of the story. They caught so much fish that their nets began to break. When Peter saw this, he fell to his knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus spoke these words, which I'm sure were seared in Peter's soul. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. Those were the words that Jesus began to mark Peter with, that you are going to be an under-shepherd. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be an elder in my church. You're going to shepherd my flock. And as Peter sat there at the end of the Gospel of John and seeing all those fish, oh, how that must have burned in his soul. Because here again was that sort of image. The same thing that happened when Jesus called was now happening again. And oh, how it must have wounded him. But you see, our Lord, who will not put out a smoldering flax nor bend a broken reed, had more grace in store for His shepherd. 
He wanted to restore his relationship. On the beach, we're told that they were sitting there eating breakfast. And John tells us these words that Jesus was cooking a fire on burning coals. About a month ago, uh, I got privileged to go to uh, Brooke Army Medical Center, what we call BAMSI. And it is the premier uh, hospital in the nation for burn victims. There's a reason for that. All of many of our uh, wounded heroes who come home, that probably the number one uh, wound or number two is burns. And we're just not talking a little fever blister. We're talking 40, 60, all the way up to 80% of their body, third degree plus burns. While there, I went in and got to see one of these men who had burned, burned significantly. I think he had 60% of his body severely burned. And he was sitting like this, and there, there was bandages over his whole body. The chaplain who I had known before from a previous assignment said, Hey, I want to show you this other room. And in this room, what they do is they take all the bandages off, and then they scrub their whole body to strip off the burnt skin and then wash them clean. Now, when I walked into that room, uh, there was an odor to that room. And if you've ever smelt burnt flesh, it is something that you will not forget. Psychologists tell us that of all the senses we possess, smell brings back the strongest memories. In John's Gospel, these words of burning coals only happen one other time. And you may remember when. When Peter denied Christ, he was warning, warming himself around burning coals. What must have been going through Peter's mind? Even as he was welcoming the meal, that smell of the coals came back. You see, Jesus was doing a surgeon's work at this point. He was creating the environment to bring back Peter, his shepherd, and that silent preacher of the coals was beginning to bring in the sweet smell of redemption. So the surgeon began his work. He asked Jesus a question, or Jesus asked him a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus began by asking Peter a comparison question. How's your love in comparison to these six other disciples who were all sitting around here? He wanted to do that because you remember what Peter said? He had a false sense of superiority. Remember what he said to the others? He said, even though all these guys might deny you, still, Lord, I won't deny you. I'll be with you to the end. And Peter says to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In this answer, Peter no longer compares himself to the others. You notice the absence of that statement? He's not saying, I love you more than these. He just says, I love you. And he also does something here too, which you may be familiar with. He changes the verb of love. Jesus said, do you agape me? That means unconditional love. Do you love me no matter what? And Peter, looking back on his life, knowing his denials, knowing how he forsake Jesus, so he did have conditions on his love, says, no, Lord, I don't agape you. I phileo you. I have brotherly affection towards you. There's a humbleness. There's a brokenness. 
that Peter is saying to the Lord. Well, Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Now, I don't think Peter got his head around it just yet, but we'll get to it in a second. Jesus asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, notice what Jesus removes in this question. He takes out the whole issue of the other disciples. And now he's just focusing on Peter's love to himself. It's as if he's taking the scalpel and going a bit deeper to cut out the sin. And Jesus again uses the word agape. He wants Peter to look deep in his heart and see if he publicly affirms Jesus, to see if he loves him. And Peter responds again, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus responds again, Take care of my sheep. A third time, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Something changes, though, in these words that we don't catch in the English that happens in the Greek. Jesus changes the word agape now to phileo. You see what he's doing? He's even questioning Peter's statement that he phileos, that he has affectionate love for Jesus. He's saying, I heard that, yes, you said you don't love, you, you just love me as you are, not, you're not going to compare yourself to disciples. I heard, yes, that you said you affectionately love me, but I'm really even going to take it a step further. I'm going to get to the deepest root. Do you even affectionately love me? And John tells us that this one struck home. He says, it grieved Peter that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? It's almost as if the surgeon knows he's reached the final point of what he needs to cut out to heal this soul. And even the soul knows the depth of the cut. And listen what Peter says. It's a little different here. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See, this time the shakiness of Peter's answers is taken off. See, Peter no longer finds his confidence in his love in himself. Where does he find the ground, the root for his love? He finds it in what Jesus knows about him. He doesn't say it's about me that I know of myself. No, it's what you know about me. You know I love you. And so he appeals to the Lord's omniscience. And that is exactly what Jesus wanted Peter to realize. It's not on what you believe that you love in me. It's what I know about you that I know you love me because I'm the foundation of your love. And this was transforming to Peter. This is what he needed to realize if he was going to be the future shepherd of God's church. My confidence is not on how good I think I love Jesus. My confidence is how much I know that Jesus loves me and that that love that He has created in me to love Him is there. Do you see, church, what's going on here? It's a whole different ground. The ground now is found in Christ and His love, not Peter and His. And that's what Peter needed to, to see happen. And this, remember, is what Jesus had prayed for. Remember what he said to Peter right before he denied him? Peter, Satan has asked you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail and that afterwards you would turn and go and strengthen your brothers. 
That faith was found in what Christ had did in us. But it also did something else. It helped Peter, one like Peter, and maybe you can relate, one who was self-confident, a hard charger, as we say in the Air Force, a fast burner, to realize that a part of his job as an under-shepherd would to display that same compassion that Jesus was displaying to him, he would need to display it to the sheep. He would have to realize that he's a broken vessel. And just as much as he needs grace, he would have to extend that grace to the lambs and to the sheep. You see, many commentators point to the fact that Jesus' reference to the sheep is to reference different uh, maturity levels. Jesus says, lambs. He says sheep. He says shepherd sheep. He also says feed the sheep. There's some slight differences in there. But the whole emphasis is in the household of God, not everybody's at the same place. You have brand new baby Christians. You have mature Christians. You have Christians struggling with sin. And Peter was to need to be able to relate to all of them, to love them and to care for him. The other thing we need to note is what Jesus did in asking him three questions. He wanted to deal with the three denials by replacing it with three affirmations. Lord, you know that I love you. And those three affirmations came with three calls on Peter's life, didn't it? Go and feed my sheep. Go and take care of my lambs. Go and shepherd my sheep. He wanted to get Peter's eyes off just how bad he had failed to his call on his life. And that his call many years earlier, when he first caught those fish, was no mistake. It was part of the predestination, the will, the sovereign electing call that Christ had on Peter. But Jesus does not end there. If you look with your Bibles, he says this to Peter. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. The Apostle John is letting us know that Peter's former freedom would now be curtailed. And as he approached his death, he would have to do very humbling acts. We know from church history that when Peter died, he was in Rome and he was to be crucified. And when he was crucified, he, uh, the way he brought glory to the Lord in his death, as John says, is he said, please don't crucify me the way my Lord was crucified, for I am not worthy to be crucified as he was crucified. So crucify me upside down. Now, I don't know about you, and even someone as strong and confident as Peter himself All of us fear something like crucifixion or death. And here he was in his death that he was still bringing glory to God through how he did it. He said, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy to even die the same way my master did. The only way I want to do this is where I want to die which brings him glory. And glory it did, says the church, because he died in such a way. But there's one last thing Jesus added after that. He told Peter, follow me. 
One thing that's true about the power of the cross and when restoration happens is that renewal is not complete unless there's marching orders. Yes, Peter, I've forgiven you. Yes, Peter, I've renewed your relationship with me. Yes, Peter, I'm restoring you to elder. But I have a job for you to do. Feed my sheep and follow me. Be willing to go wherever I call you to go. I am your Lord. You see, restorations means restoring the relationship, but it also is a call to service. And dear friends, as we just went through Easter, as we saw Jesus move through His whole pattern of how He said, I'm going to the cross. And then He went to uh, the uh, Gethsemane. And He was in prayer and He asked for strength. I'm going to the cross. And then He went to the cross. And He did. He went through all those horrible trials where what should have been the most righteous court in the world was the most unrighteous. And He did all those things. And then He went to the, the grave. He put the death to death itself. He rose from the grave. He accomplished all those things. And He did that so that He could be the mediator between you and I. And when we look at Peter's life, in some ways for each of us, it's, it's a snapshot of our own. If you're a child of God, because Jesus has to reach into each one of us and call us out of where we were to restore our relationship with Him. To make us a child of God. You see, on His work of a cross, on His resurrection from the grave, Jesus did these things. He made it possible that there would no longer be enmity between the Lord, the Father, and the children of wrath. He purchased us. He restored us. He renewed us. And dear friend, if you're a believer today, He has called you to a ministry. And that is to follow Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for... Uh, we just thank You for this um, passage. It's humbling. And yet at the same time, Lord, it's amazing to see Your love. How amazing is Your architecture to work wonders and restore a servant of Yours. Lord, I do pray that for this church and for myself, that we would realize that we're all broken vessels. That's something our human pride does not want to believe in. Lord, help us to not give in to self-confidence and make false statements like Peter did, but rather have brokenness. And Lord, that we would want to follow You. And Lord, perhaps there today, this morning, there might be a person who is struggling with their sin and relationship with God. They may be wondering, can God use me after I have messed up so badly? The answer is found in the depths of the blood of Calvary. There is no end to it. It can cover all as long as we seek the forgiveness of You. And Lord, as we turn to You and no longer go our own way, but go the way that You call us to. Father, I would pray for that individual. And I would pray for us as a church because Paul admonishes us that if any of us are caught in a trespass, that You would go and restore that person. It is the church's job to not be passively silent and to just watch but rather to be active 
in love, just as you were, Christ, in restoring Peter, so we are too to be active in restoring others. Lord, help us as your children, as your church, to do those things. And we look forward to how you will accomplish that. For your glory, O Christ, we pray. Amen.